It's the TEH podcast, episode number 188. I'm Leo Notenboom of askleo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of macmost.com. And these are our real, authentic voices. This yeah, no week. AI. We're not, not going to play with that stuff this week. Now we'll we'll get around to eventually having AI just do the show for us. Yep. Um, yep. And, just give it a couple yeah. of topics and turn it loose for now. Exactly, and just press produce, and then it'll upload. But for um, now, until we figure that out, we'll just actually do it manually. Manually, I know the old way, old technology, the old tech way. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I have been, I don't know, kind of itching to talk about for a little while, uh, so it's been on our list for a while, just never made the cut, mm -hmm. is um, virtual machine technology. It's one of those things that um, a lot of people don't realize exists in way more places than uh, than they might expect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a super simple primer, um, I always refer to virtual machines as a machine in a window. By that, I mean, uh, you know, I'm sitting here looking at my machine, my desktop machine running Windows 11. And yet in a window, in a corner, I have another complete machine uh, that happens to be running Windows 10. It's how I maintain, uh, you know, how I you know, do a lot of my screen recording, a lot of my research into versions of Windows and even other operating systems that I don't necessarily have to have a dedicated machine for each. I just fire up a virtual machine and it sets up a, uh, a simulated environment of a PC and then launches whatever I decide to launch. Anyway, uh, so I, I do that a lot. In fact, I've been obviously been doing that for years. Um, I have virtual machines for Windows XP and Windows 10, Windows 11, that kind of stuff. I also have virtual machines that run uh, Linux. Uh, the only operating system that I can't easily run in a virtual machine is, of course, Mac OS because Apple. So yeah. um, what I think is interesting is that um, a lot, like I said, when I started, uh, virtual machines are in a lot more places, I think, than people really realize. For example, uh, the um, askleo.com server, um, it is a virtual machine. And it's one of those scenarios where I have absolutely no idea what the actual hardware looks like that it's running on. My assumption is that it's a fairly massive, beefy, powerful piece of equipment um, probably with, you know, one of the Intel processors that's got like 128 cores or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, oodles of RAM, oodles of disk space, lots of flexibility in how things are configured. Um, but I essentially rent a corner of that machine. And there's, I'm sure, an exterior operating system. But in reality, uh, what I see is my own little virtual machine, my own little corner of the world. And I think that that's true for a lot of different um, sites and services that we all use. Um, the, um, uh, you know, any website you visit is probably in some form of a virtual machine. Now, one of the distinctions that's worth making, of course, is that there's also this concept of shared hosting when it comes to websites. And in those cases, that's not a virtual machine. You're actually on one machine. There's one instance of the operating system, and they just have permissions set up that, well, you can access this, but you can't access that. Um, if something breaks, you can actually see you know, the other sites and services, but it's all one big shared machine. It's like you had one PC and everybody was sharing the entire file system and all of the operating system and everything that's on it. Virtual machines, like I said, are not that. They are very 
well isolated complete simulations of machines from one another so all this is to segue into something that uh, into another topic that i talk about um, often perhaps too often to some people's tastes and that is backing up um you probably remember i don't know a few weeks ago i mentioned that um, i had completed and released my uh, online course for backing up with macrium reflect mm -hmm. um the style of backup that I um, I tend to proselytize is the image backup, where what you are backing up is not this, this folder or this set of information. You just say, you know what, this disk, everything on it, whether it's important or not, back it up, create an image. Uh, some people refer to it as a clone. There are semantic differences between clone and image, but ultimately they are roughly the same thing. Uh, a bit for bit copy of everything that is on a hard disk. The neat thing, of course, is then if you need to replace a hard disk, you just replace the hard disk with an empty one, replace the image back onto the replacement hard disk and reboot and off you go. I suspect, um, and Gary, you can, can correct me if I'm wrong, my suspect I suspect that time machine is kind of sort of like that. Um, if you were to, if you needed to replace a hard disk, you would basically just stream the dive machine back up, back onto the replacement hard disk and things would just carry on. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there's that, there's another piece of software involved uh, called migration assistant. Um, so you would set up your Mac with the new drive. It would mm -hmm. install the operating system would be there already, or you would install it. Yeah, and then okay. one of the options at that point is, what do you want to do? Do you want to just, okay, it's just a brand new machine. Uh, do you want to um, restore from either a time machine backup or from another machine that's actually there? Like if you've got a new Mac and your old Mac yeah, is sitting right next to migrating, it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you would use migration assistant to do that. And then it would, you know, theoretically restore, you know, the new Mac to exactly how your old Mac was at the time of your last time machine backup. If the new Mac has a newer version of the operating system, mm -hmm. does restoring your time machine backup bring it back to the old version? No. Okay. No. So okay. it's just it's just data applications, you know, the apps. Okay. Um, and it's interesting. Like that. That's very different. That's very different than than the image backups I'm talking about because it yeah. literally is a bit for bit com uh, copy of your hard disk. But what's neat about it is it's something that um, Windows users would love to be able to do. It sounds like you've got a bit more of a um, a well defined line between what is and is not the operating system, mm -hmm. because oh, with yeah. with um, Windows, what a lot of people want to do is essentially what you just described. They right. want to upgrade the operating system and then just replace, you know, or restore all the apps and their data, which of course is not something that uh, pretty much any backup solution in Windows can actually do. Yeah, I mean, but, literally, almost literally a line because, you know, the system on Mac OS now for the last uh, two years has been on a read-only volume. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that line is a hard line nowadays. Right, but there's also things like um, um, settings and yeah. Oh, configuration yeah, and that kind of stuff yeah. that sometimes tends to blur the line, right? Is, is this an operating yeah. system setting or is this an application setting? Is it, you know, wh where did the application come from? Is the application part of the operating system? Mm -hmm. You get the idea, right? There, there's yeah, lots definitely. of, there, there's, there's definitely some, some fuzziness possible. And in Windows, of course, it's all fuzziness. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things then that it sounds like you can't do is what I'm about to describe, which I, I discovered as part of my work with Macro and Reflect because they actually support this out of the box. 
Yeah. You can take an image backup of a machine that you have, you know, some backup that you made. Um, I think I, when I actually did the lesson in the course on this, I picked a backup that I had done last year sometime. Mm -hmm. And you can say, okay, boot this as if it were a virtual machine. In other words, it's not restoring it. It's just running it in a sense. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it it actually kind of sort of worked. Uh, I, I was impressed by that because one of the struggles that this scenario has, and it's a discussion I also have from time to time on Ask Leo, is that if you've got a backup, you've got Windows configured for that specific machine, mm -hmm. that whatever machine you had taken that backup image on. So to be able to restore it to anything that is different uh, is a challenge. Now it's, it's gotten better. Um, but the bottom line is that when you restore that copy of windows to something other than its original hardware, it says, Oh, there's a whole bunch of hardware here that I didn't know about. And there's a whole bunch of hardware that's missing that I thought we had. And it goes through a fairly uh, lengthy, painful process of reconfiguring itself. It's gotten better. It's definitely gotten better, but it's never gotten a hundred percent. The the stock advice across the board is if you're going to switch to a new machine, uh, you do essentially what you just described the Mac does. You install the operating system, a clean version of the operating system. But then in this case, you know, in the Windows case, instead of restoring your applications and data, you reinstall your applications and then recopy over your data. The fact that being able to boot this random backup image into a virtual machine actually worked. Um, is very, very impressive because the virtual machine presents a completely different set of hardware or presents as a completely different set right. of hardware. Um, but it's a neat thing to be able to do. In fact, uh, the documentation around it actually talks about uh, it being part of business, a business continuity plan. By that, you know, Macrium, while it's an, it's an excellent, piece of backup software, and I heartily recommend it. Um, if it has one flaw, it's that it is focused much too much on business and not enough really on the average home user. But um, this is one of those cases where, you know, clearly they're positioning this feature as a, a business continuity feature where, you know, before you've got your, your replacement hardware or you've recovered from your ransomware or you do whatever, take this backup, run it in a virtual machine and your systems are back up and running, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. I personally see it as a way to uh, you know, potentially recover data without necessarily having to restore things to actually run some mission critical software without having to, uh, you know, without necessarily having all the resources available otherwise. Anyway, I just find virtual machines in general to be fascinating and really interesting stuff. And um, there was a, a time where I was really tempted to uh, run my primary operating system as a virtual machine. I actually ran Ubuntu Linux on my laptop for a while in a virtual machine and tried to use that as my primary machine. And um, I, it, the operating system ran fine. What, what stopped me and had me going back to Windows was the, uh, um, the, the, the lack of a couple of key applications in Linux, not you know the, the fact that the virtual machine technology wasn't working. Anyway, I just found it really, really interesting. And I just love this opportunity for people who actually are backing up regularly with good backup software to be able to actually run one of those images, something you never really, really would think of. Yeah.
I, you know, I've experimented a little bit with virtual machines on, on Macs, um, because uh, it uh, the M1 M2 architecture really makes it easy mm-hmm. to spin up a virtual uh, a virtual Mac inside your Mac. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, what it's prevented me from using it because you think I'd be the ideal person to use it because I could then have a virtual machine and then do my tutorials in a exactly. virtual machine. Exactly what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Except that uh, iCloud doesn't work. Uh, really? It's like a hard line, like, okay, as things stand now, you could, you know, you could boot up uh, Mac OS and have this virtual machine and it works great. Oh, by the way, no iCloud. It's like, oh, oh, that's a tough one because I mean, it it's, might be a security kind of thing where it's not that it couldn't be done securely. It's just that it's going to take time and consideration as to being able to handle in a virtual machine, contacting all the secure parts of iCloud and getting that all, you know, I guess a whole huge list of check marks out of the way in terms of like making sure it's working and secure. Um, and so right now that just is no, it's no, you cannot log into iCloud when you're using a virtual machine in that way. So yeah, that's unfortunate. And hopefully it's something at, at some point that will change. I mean, right now it's easy for me Almost as easy just to switch users on my Mac. You know, I right. just have a, a, a second user account. And with fast user switching, I can just switch back and forth. So it's really, it's not like, oh, you know, damn it, I can't save that 10 seconds <laughs> that a virtual <laughs> machine would get me. Um, yeah, you know, but I have done the thing where I've done, um, you know, I've I've used screen sharing, which is kind of like a virtual machine, except the, the machine, the virtual machine is actually a real machine. I was gonna say, it's, it's a it's different a- one. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it is nice because then it's running in a window on your Mac, right? So I can actually record another Mac on this on the Mac I have all my recording stuff on and all that, right. and that's come in handy sometimes when like oh I need to show how to do something that's specific to a MacBook. Well, guess what? I use a Mac Studio, but I do have a MacBook, so I could just you know bring the virtual you know, bring the machine into a little window and then do it and, and all of that. So it's happened a few times where I've done that, but yeah, I hope uh, at some point that'll be better. I also am looking forward to, and I may actually do a video on this at some point is using a windows virtual machine. That's at a service like the windows uh, three, six, five um, cloud computing thing. They've got mm-hmm. what's it called? Cloud PC solutions, uh, which is uh a, a way to like people keep asking me oh can i i want to run windows on my my new mac like i did my old intel mac uh-huh. it's like well you can't really do that i mean you can run the arm version of windows but then it, that probably means you can't run the game you you're actually trying to run i was gonna say yeah it, it's 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 windows but it's not really windows yeah. right but you can certainly run like a, a you know an online cloud pc Yes. And right now the prices are kind of like, it's just expensive enough to make a lot of people say, nah. Yep, I, I did look into that. Um, but it's, it's you, close. Did you look at, um, I'm not sure how long ago you looked, but where did you look? Were you looking at um, Azure, the Microsoft service? Uh, it might be. I'm looking uh, right now at the Windows 365 uh Business okay. Yeah, that's PC. all based on on Azure. Yeah, it's all Microsoft. Azure. Yeah. Um, as and, it turns and, out, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, AWS has these two. Yeah, I saw that AWS has something like that, and that might be a solution because I think at some point, either with a slight price drop on these, or maybe right. just a little more, making a little more accessible. That's something I I would be talking about at Mac most is right. like, okay, forget about forget about trying to run 
you know, install Windows on a, on a massive part of your hard drive and getting all that to go and maintaining it, right? Um, just sign up for one of these services and and there you go. There's, well, your, the, there's Windows on your Mac. Sure. And another, um, a more general uh, salesy aspect of all this is why buy a PC, right? I mean, yeah. for, you know, if, if you can, if you can do everything you need to do on one of these um, quote unquote virtual PCs that's elsewhere hosted in the cloud, so to speak, then uh, why bother having hardware of your own? Yeah. Uh, other than something that has uh, the software to be able to connect to it, the remote desktop or whatever remote access software you're using. Right. And and I've talked previously about using these the same technique to play games, play Windows only games mm -hmm. on my Mac, streaming online. Mm -hmm. And I have I've actually done it. I haven't just done it as a you know oh let me test this out. Like I've actually played games, right. and it's fine except that the way they the way those services work now is they have to have the game. So if you find a service and somehow they've obtained a license to the game uh, and you could, right. you know, it, like the N NVIDIA was the one I was using and all that. So if it's not in their, in their list of games, you can't do it. If it is in their list of games, then you can pay something and it is a, a pretty reasonable price and then stream a game. And it actually, the surprising thing is it's incredibly responsive. Like I didn't feel I was playing a game that had any kind of lag because you I'd know, be I most, was hitting a key. most yeah. concerned about um, exactly that, not just lag for the yeah. keystrokes going up, but for display updates, because depending on the game you're playing, that could be a, I don't want to call it a massive amount of data, but it's a lot of data. It is, it but it really works. then becomes dependent on your, um, the speed and the quality, the overall quality of your internet connection. Exactly. And and for me, it worked playing a, a modern sure. 3D first person game I I had no issues with it. It was it was great. Matter of fact, any for a lot of people, any downside, you know, as long as they have a quality connection, decent quality connection, right? The downside of like maybe every once in a while there's a hiccup because of you know network speeds and all of that uh, is kind of counterbalanced by the fact that at the other end is a very capable game machine, right? So you may not have that very capable game machine if you went the other route and spent, say, a thousand bucks on a PC to play right. a Windows game. It's like you may be playing on more of the equivalent of like a $3,000 or $5,000 gaming PC. Exactly. Yep. And so they kind of compensate for each other. Anyway, it's uh, it's interesting. And it's certainly a, um, uh, you know, certainly I, I kind of feel we're at the precipice of like things getting considerably better. Like the stuff you're talking about, like seems to be almost like more people could be using it mainstream and the stuff I'm talking about the same thing, right? It's like just a little bit better on the, uh, on the ease of use and price and, and kind of like, I, I don't know, change of mindset. And we could be doing a lot more virtually, uh, you know, uh, with the whole operating systems or games or apps, even apps, you know, that's another thing. Um, not even going to entire operating systems, but um, so yeah, cool stuff. Um, yep. It is. The one thing that has prevented me from uh, seriously considering uh, moving some of the mm -hmm. things that I have on machines here at home into the cloud uh, has been uh, price because it is still definitely yeah. cheaper <laughs> to have your machine. I mean, I've mentioned, I think I mentioned last week uh, that I was building out a NAS. In fact, I'm sure I did. I, I mentioned uh, building out a, a uh, a PC basically to act as a network attached storage. And it's got this new um, 
massive external USB drive on it, which is all working wonderfully. There's a salute. There's a there's an argument that says, you know what, that just shouldn't be in my home. That should just be like up at AWS or whatever. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, especially given the storage involved, um, it's just not cost effective to do that. And uh, my internet connection, uh, it's it's good. It's not you know your kind of good, but it's still good. Um, but it's not that good. It's not really good enough to do the massive kind of of data transfer that I continually do. You know, I just let happen from machine to machine overnight here. Yeah. And I think there's got to be a change of mindset for the consumer too, because consumers now think in terms of like, I'll spend a few thousand dollars right now right. on computing hardware and then technically not have to spend anything else for a while. Right. I mean, right. that's not exactly true, but there's the feeling that I put this money down now and now there's no more money to be spent until I want to go to a new machine right. and instead go to this monthly fee. But the the good thing about the monthly fee is that when you do want to upgrade, yep, there's no additional cost. Like you, you maybe you're paying, say in the future, maybe you're paying like twenty dollars a month, right, for access to a, a decent Windows PC, and then one day you look and you say, hey, there's a better deal. I actually can get a better Windows PC, and it's still going to cost me twenty dollars a month, or maybe it's going to be twenty two dollars a month. But there is no like now I have to outlay, you know. Four thousand dollars to like right. get a whole new system. It's a change of change of way of thinking that that a lot of I know a lot of people have trouble with. I mean, the same thing with streaming music services. You know, right. I still I've been doing some videos recently on you know Apple Music and and stuff like that. And there's still a lot of people that are stuck with the no, I'll, I'll buy all my music, thank you. Mm -hmm. And and I always think it's like I've never spent less money on music than I than I have since I switched first to Spotify and then to Apple Music. I mean, right. it's $10 a month. So I spend $120 a year for all of my music. Right. Previous to that, yeah. I never got close to $120 a month. I was going to say, that's what, was, maybe maybe 10 that, CDs? That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so it, many years it was four digits easy yeah. on how, how much I spent on music because I love music. And so dropping down to $120 a month became this thing. It's like, Wow. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm saving tons of money, and that's been what ten more than ten years at this point. That actually reminds me of a question. Um, Apple announced their classical yes. music thing. Mm -hmm. um, is that a subset of what's available on Apple Music? Yeah. Yeah. Is it, okay. So here's so here's the thing is, um, yeah, I actually did a video on. Uh, on the classical music app. It, so it doesn't add any new music. Okay. Everything was available and still is available on Apple Music. And matter of fact, on the Mac side of things, nothing has changed. There's still one big music app and right. all the classical music's there. All that it really does, it's an, it's an iOS and uh, you know an iPhone and an iPad app that is just the classical music. So it's an interface that pays special attention to composers. Right. And to like even has things like conductors, right. you know, you can look at your music by conductors, which would be kind of ridiculous on a regular music app, you know, thinking in terms of the, uh, of, uh, you know, why would you be looking for composers or conductors, you know, for rock music, for instance. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's just a, it's just a slightly different interface. It's the kind of thing where if you are a classical music fan, it's like, oh, this is a breath of fresh air. This talk, this speaks my language rather than having to go through other stuff. 
Um, it has some nice playlists and things like that that I've been, you know, listening through. So mm -hmm. it's a great way to discover classical music, but you could go and say, oh, here's some music I like, and there's a playlist, and oh, there's some, you know, composers I haven't heard of before. Or I could say, hey, this piece is done by this orchestra. There's other recordings by this orchestra. What else, you know, may I like? So it's it's an interesting thing, but it really isn't anything new. And it's all part of the same Apple Music subscription. So there's no new subscription. Oh, okay. Because you have an Apple Music subscription. Now on the iPhone, you have the choice between the music app or the classical music app, or just switch freely between them. Matter of fact, if you make a playlist on the Apple Music app and it has all classical music, and you look at your the classical music app, the playlist is there. Cool. And vice versa. Obviously, if you make one of the, you know, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, it's not going to show up in the classical music app. I'm sure there's some classical orchestra covers of Led Zeppelin maybe, music out there. So. Maybe. So, you know, it, it, it's it's an interesting, um, it, you know, and in, uh, in my video, I did a joke of like the fact that, you know, classical music, the weird thing about it is there's no original recordings. Beethoven, for some reason, <laughs> never went into the studio and recorded any of his stuff. What you a think missed opportunity. Some, I know. You think there'd at least be some bootleg tapes out there of him playing. <laughs> no, nothing. So we'll have to rely on like, you know, rec modern recordings from right. orchestras and in instrumentalists. Eh, oh, well. I do have to well, say that I, I my, uh, as I think, you know, my musical tastes are quite eclectic and yeah. certainly classical um, is included. And I will say that, yes, discovery of classical music mm -hmm. varies dramatically across the various apps, um, even the most popular ones. And when you think about it, Spotify, um, classical music isn't its target audience for the most part. They're they're more focused on, um, you know, current, popular, large right. you know, swaths of people. And the same is true, I think, for most of the music um, uh, music apps, be it Spotify or Amazon Music or um, even YouTube Music. Um, mm -hmm. You know, those all have exactly the same problem. Uh, somehow, it just sort of fits the Apple zeitgeist that they would come up with a classical music app. Um, yeah, for various reasons. Cool. Yep. Cool. So let's complain. Should we complain? Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, let's complain about people complaining. Um, no, I, I was actually curious on your take on something that I've noticed. Uh, of course, the last couple of months, the main story in technology has been AI. And there have been, you know, part of that has been people kind of complaining about it or saying, hey, we should slow down. We need to think of the implications, the ramifications of this. Uh, things are moving too fast. Um, and there's been blog posts. There have been, you know, videos made. Isn't there like posted. a signed letter with a lot of not notables on yeah, it? So, yeah, there's been some yeah. notable people that haven't written anything but have said, oh, you know, quick little, like, oh, we need to be careful here. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when I read this stuff and I see this stuff, I think, okay, that's interesting. What do you expect to happen? I mean, do you expect because because what's going on here? It's not like one company has like some sort of patent and came forward and it's like it's them that are doing it. It's like okay, at this point, you have OpenAI says okay, we've got this, and Google says oh, we've we've been working on that for a long time. Now we're going to put our thing out, and you know you've got other companies also saying they've got stuff and companies building on OpenAI stuff, there's, you know, a whole kind of race here to 
to build things. And I don't see them all together saying, hey, let's get together and agree to slow down. You know, there, there's kind of a race going on. I mean, if somebody builds a something on OpenAI's platform that proves to be useful and they're the first, you're the first to do it, you could stand to have a very successful product or company. Um, so the idea of being like, hey, let's take a step back is like, no, because if we take a step back, somebody else is going to beat it, beat us to it. Right. Um, so that's why there is kind of this entrepreneurial capitalistic rush to like, let's use this new technology. So the idea to slow down is just, it's, it's an interesting thing to say. I don't, I couldn't imagine anybody in the actual industry is paying a bit of attention to it. Um, which, I mean, maybe, you know, I go back and forth. It's like, so what's the point in saying it? What's the point in saying we should slow down if nobody's really going to slow down? Well, I mean, I think it's still worth saying. I think I it's think still it, worth warning. Yeah, there's, there's, I think the Be side mindful. effect is probably more important than the actual message. And that is that by saying something as attention grabbing, yeah. as we should slow down, um, you've grabbed attention. And now you can start talking about, the real issue, which is we should think this through. We should be careful. We should understand what it is we're doing. Yeah, um, I think, I, I mean, I think a more constructive thing that I haven't seen as much of is people saying, okay, everybody's going to charge ahead full speed. Everybody is charging ahead full speed. In hmm. base, it, Knowing that that is true, how can we still maybe address some of these issues? You know, uh, knowing that it's just it's basically a force of economics at this point well, that AI is moving forward fast. So I think there's the opportunity. You're right. Everybody's going full speed ahead for sure. Mm -hmm. But I think there's the opportunity that um, um, there's the possibility that some of these efforts could course correct. They could make some decisions yes. ever so slightly differently without necessarily slowing down, just exactly. heading off in, in a more... Um, uh, well thought through direction. That's exactly what I was trying to say. You just said it a lot better. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's 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 it what was the AI, be... it was the AI in me. The AI, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that's. I mean, I think that's what can be done here. I think it's like not necessarily, you know, point out here's here's problems that could occur instead yes. of saying S stop wait till we figure these out or slow right. down it's right. like hey th as you run forward as fast as you can at least think of these and maybe make some changes that will help here and and i think part of it is is there's been a lot of headlines of people saying oh wow this stuff is amazing and it's real ai and all that i don't even as an old school computer science guy i'd almost think that this is more like simulated intelligence than artificial sure. intelligence. I think that the idea of artificial intelligence is that there are two types of intelligence, natural intelligence and artificial intelligence. Both are intelligence, but one is human or, you know, natural intelligence, another word for that is human intelligence or HI. And one's human intelligence and one is human intelligence, but artificially created. Simulated intelligence, I think would define it as it is not actually intelligence. It's just simulated, which I think better describes the the you know a GPT style thing. It's you. It's basically formulating language to make it look like it's intelligent, but I, there's no real thought there. I I, I think you're right. Um, yeah. I think that the people that are working on this technology 
um, would absolutely agree with you that it is not necessarily artificial. It is a simulation. Um, you know, even the 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 AIs themselves, the chat GPTs themselves will often fall back to the line that, hey, this is something I can't do. I'm just a large language model. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that limits exactly what I can and cannot do. The but from a if the simulation is good enough, does it matter? I think it does. I does think just it? be yes, just because you just because if you ask. A, a you know a chat bot 10 questions in a conversation and it responds exactly the same way as an intelligent human would for those 10 questions it still doesn't mean it's intelligent it just means that it was able to fool you for 10 questions and fooling you was fine humans do it all the time mm -hmm. right you could get into conversations with humans about something they don't know much about and they could fool you for long enough to maintain that conversation and that's fine too. It's what happens when, well, there, it's more than just fooling you, when it can actually, you know, do more than that, which is actual human intelligence. I mean, it, uh, having chatbots, you know, people could say, oh, sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it, you know, wrong, like you like to say, wrong, but with confidence. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, humans do that all the time. I just got in a conversation this weekend with somebody that, uh, so much confidence in what they were saying. Um, and I don't have that kind of confidence. I have the normal amount of confidence, whereas I, I'm not going to charge ahead just saying something unless I'm like, oh, I know that's a fact or whatever. Um, and But so eventually that, that human <laughs> with all the confidence in the world finally stumbled into stuff that I was like, no, no, I know that's wrong. Like I know about this subject and I called them on it. And saw them train, change track, tact really quickly. And after that portion of the conversation, I said, oh, so all that other stuff that I didn't know much about, I call that all into question now. You know, because the one part of the conversation, I could definitively know that they were wrong on their facts. It's like that they're wrong there. So they must have been, you know, maybe right, maybe wrong in some of the other stuff. Humans do this all the time. And... I but think it's okay for AI to do it. You're making I mean, a, I, a very yeah. strong argument that says the simulation yeah. um, is really, really good because it mimics human foibles really, well, really well. No, I think I think uh, in this case, like what we're looking for in artificial intelligence is it being really, really good because it gets its facts right. Um, it gets its lot no more importantly than facts, even the logic, right. And all of that, <laughs> um, it's not, but what I'm saying is it's not in a lot of, I, I should say, yeah, I should say in a lot of cases in just being a good conversational partner, <laughs> it's okay for it not to get all its facts, right. Matter of fact, it's probably going to be a horrible conversational partner once it is perfected or gets closer to perfection and gets right. all of its facts right. It's like that's going to be nobody's going to want to talk to that. You know, ChatGPT version know seven. Know it all. <laughs> ChatGPT version seven is going to be like nobody's going to want to talk to to, the, to version seven. But ChatGPT four is is fine to talk to now <laughs> because it's not annoying because it doesn't always get everything right. Um, so maybe that's I mean, so maybe as a as a chat. Remember, chat is the key thing here right as a chat bot it's i, I think wondering about that fine. 
because I have never ever used it in, in a in a chat format. Oh, oh, I am doing that a lot more and more, and I, I'm finding I go it to be more one useful. in and one out every time. Oh no, I see. I'm finding it. So I feel I've kind of hit the limit. Like I've already asked it questions like, uh, what are some unusual topics for Mac tutorials dealing with pages, <laughs> you know, and it gives me like <laughs> a list of 10 and I'm like, I already covered all 10 of those, you know? Right, right, and, right. and so I've, I've asked it all that stuff to try to help me fill out, you know, my tasks and things I need to do. So I've gotten to the point now where it's like, I try to treat it like, okay, I'm going to, I need a new topic for something or a new idea or any, whatever. I'm just going to treat chat, chat GPT. Like I'm talking to somebody I know who may not know everything about the subject, but is fairly knowledgeable and just and try not to get the answer in one, like one question and then the answer and go. And I go back and forth and I, I, I say things like, yeah, that's not unusual enough. What else would people want to hear? Uh, do they really want to hear about that though? That, that subject doesn't seem that interesting. You know, I just, and I come up with some, basically what ends up happening is exactly what would happen if I were talking to a human, the actual solution of my problem or the idea I'm looking for comes mostly from me. But it comes out of the conversation I'm having with the chatbot. Interesting. Box. Yep. Yeah. So, so there's, I don't know, uh, kind of gotten off tangent off of the original thing. Well, here. There, yeah. There, so there were a couple of things. I, I've thrown a yeah. couple of links into the show notes. Um, one yeah. is a link to the Guardian, although it's been covered in many places. Um, there is literally a, a letter signed by, among other people, Elon Musk, because of course he's the one that gets the headline. Um, yeah. But like a thousand other um, AI researchers that says we should pause. So um, it's it's not a small thing. This concept of pause um, is definitely out there and um, getting some attention. Hopefully, as we've discussed, with the intent of getting attention, not to pausing it, but to have mm -hmm. people be more intentional about the direction that they might head off in. As a side note, uh, my concern, one concern I have about the pause movement is that it might backfire and result mm. in legislation. Mm. If that happens, uh, the country that imposes the legislation will have put itself um, in, a, in a severe disadvantage because you know that yeah. other countries are gonna go full speed ahead um, you know, damn the ethics, full speed ahead kind of thing. So well, isn't it, it, yeah, isn't it true that, I mean, so at this point, open AI, I believe that's a, I mean, that's all in the USA, right? Yes. I, I, yeah. And I so. uh, Google, Google, of course, is. Mm -hmm. um, so with, this is another case um, where the new technology, which more and more is software, not hardware, um, kind of comes out of the incubator, the technology incubator that is kind of the US, you know, tech sure. Uh, sure. which, you know, I think for a long time, people have been fearing that that the center of that may move outside the United States. Right. Because right. we've had it for, since the invention of the, you know, the semiconductor, pretty much. <laughs> you know, it's pretty much all been here in the United States. It doesn't mean other countries like Japan and China, you know, don't run with stuff. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things outside the U S like for instance, CERN with, you know, the mention of the web and all that. Yep. Yep. Um, but by and large, these, the tech incubators are where the stuff comes out of. And we're, here we are in 2023. And the hottest thing is chatbot AI. And it's from the US again. So we're still, the center is still here for now. <laughs> but my concern is that if this, it, if this yeah. pause turned into a legislation, that could be another impetus for the center to move. 
Yep, exactly. Um, in last week's seven takeaways, I mentioned an article um, in, let's see, uh, enjoy the singularity, how to be optimistic about the future. Again, link will be in the show notes. Um, this article is actually a very interesting perspective on um, why it's important for us to be um, optimistic about where things are headed. And pragmatically, uh, he points out, the author points out that um, that's not to say that things won't, you know, will be perfect. It's not to say that there won't be mistakes. It's not to say that bad things won't happen, but that's not a reason for us to stop. Um, it's a reason for us to move forward and make sure that good things do happen. Um, you know, consider all of the people that were, oh, I don't know, um, killed building hydroelectric dams or um, injured in the initial years of the automobile's presence or any of those kinds of things. Had any of that been used as a as a reason not to move forward with those technologies, where would we be? Um, and I think the same is very, very true for a lot of the technologies that we're talking about right now, especially, again, since we're talking about it, AI. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about um, you know, AI in automobiles, self-driving. Um, I, I, without, I mean, there, there's a, a whole rat hole we could go into there, but the bottom line is that um, if you believe Tesla, and right now I still kind of sort of do, um, you know, turning on self-driving is actually safer than driving yourself. Uh, you are in fewer accidents that way. Are you in zero accidents? Of course not. And mm. what's interesting is that it's those zero, those, those few accidents that happen because it was in self-driving mode that um, that get all the publicity or the cars that burst into flames that get all the publicity. Doesn't matter that, you know, a hundred people died the day before in automobile accidents with normal cars, uh, with, you know, regular drivers. So there's it, it's complicated because of the way that information is presented. It's complicated because of the way that people interpret the information. Um, but the fact is, there is no perfection here. Um, there is only incremental refinement in an un unfortunately, that does mean that some bad things are going to happen along the way for that refinement to occur. Yep, exactly. It's what I, I like to always refer to the chickenpox vaccine. And, you know, the, the thing about the chickenpox vaccine is I believe one in, I think it's a million people that get it, uh, have a reaction and die from it. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing is one in a million is tiny compared to the number of people that would die from chicken pox. Yep. Yep. And you know, a lot of people don't realize people die from, you know, it used to be when kids got chicken pox, some kids greater than one in a million would die from it. So we have far less deaths. The difference is that different kids, right? So somebody that does die, it's a little, you know, uh, you know, cons console to their families right. that they died because they wouldn't have died if they didn't get the vaccine, but maybe a thousand other kids would have if the vaccine didn't exist and get administered. Right. So, you know, it's the same thing with driving. It's like, okay, somebody dies in a car accident and AI was involved, a self-driving car was involved. And it's like, well, if it wasn't for the self-driving car, they would still be here, except that if the rates of, you know, the uh, accidents go down, the rates of car deaths go down, you know, we, you have to look at that. It, there, it's a, philosophical thing. Well, we'll leave that for the next episode of a philosophy enthusiast hour. 
path. Yeah, the it path, really, it, it really does. Those arguments really do end up becoming very complicated. And it does come back to, you know, one of the things that um, that I've been saying for a very long time, people want black and white answers, and there just aren't any. There's just shades of gray. And yeah. uh, it really, it really, um, it really heightens the importance of understanding just which shade of gray you're really talking about. Yeah. And so I have a computer science degree from the 80s. And a lot of people doing this work now also have computer science degrees from the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Google's basically founded on that. And I mm -hmm. assume a lot of open AI employees are also computer science people. Um, so I went through the curriculum and it included the full four years of going to college, which had a two credit class, I think sophomore year called uh, like the elements of moral philosophy. Two credits, which meant it meant two hours per week for right. one quarter. Right. And and that was it. And that was and, and the thing was, we were lucky that our, you know, that uh, my group that went through at my college, that they even gave us that class. Because I know other computer science people didn't get anything. Right. And now I think looking back, uh, you know, they didn't they thought, hey, these people are just gonna go on to sit and write computer code. Right. You know, what do we what why do they need to learn philosophy in college? And yeah. fortunately, a few people said, ah, I think they might. That's why we got a little bit of education instead of none. But I think looking back now, uh, they probably wish that no, they probably should have gotten like <laughs> You know, uh, 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 quite a deal more if we knew that they were going to be dealing with things like, you know, the self-driving cars and artificial intelligence and social media networks and, you know, how yeah, their impact yeah. on society. Oh, yeah. Ethics. That, who'd have thunk it? Who would have thought? <laughs> anyway, so, we talked we talked enough about uh, AI. Yes, yes. But so, last week, last yeah. week, we were talking about um, yeah. streaming and how I made the offhand remark that... Um, some of the streaming services basically choose what quality to present the info, you know, the, the video in, yes. regardless of what the quality of the source material is, they choose to, um, my guess is they probably buy bandwidth on these services or whatever. Mm. Um, but, you know, so cheaper bandwidth means lower quality, yada, yada. And I made the comment that, you know, it was very clear on some of the things that I was looking at on some of these retro TV streams that, yep, yep, this is an old television show and it's just showing on the screen, you know, on a much higher resolution screen. And it looks not that great. On the other hand, some shows really look good ish. Uh -huh. And I mentioned Buffy because that happens to be um, something that is running in the evenings now while we have the TV on. Uh -huh. And um, apparently there's a heck of a lot more to Buffy than I realized. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, when you mentioned Buffy as an example, I was surprised because I thought you were going to talk about how they botched the Buffy HD upgrade, uh, but you, you didn't know about it. it it's I didn't a weird, even know about it. Nope. It's a weird example because a lot of so a lot of shows that were aired, you know, in the eighties and nineties, mm -hmm. they were first of all four by three ratio, right? Um, which you know TVs back then. Listen up, kids. TVs back then used to be four by three, um, <laughs> and, and so they weren't widescreen right. and they weren't. HD, it was only SD, standard definition, much lower resolution. And what we Actually, I think today. it's even worse than what we would today call SD. If I'm yeah, not it's it's bad. And uh, and they were just shown over these TVs. And that was fine because there was really no other way that these things were seen. Um, so today with streaming services showing those sh shows with like black bars on the left and right and the lower quality uh, seems a little ridiculous. So a lot of these shows have been updated 
uh, to HD. And how that is done uh, varies according to the show. Fortunately, back then, in America at least, uh, a lot of shows were filmed. So they actually filmed them on either 16 or 35 millimeter film like you, they were making a movie, mm -hmm. not on videotape. And then took the film and converted the film to video where they edited it and produced the show, which means that higher quality versions of the scenes exist. So instead of showing the standard definition version today, they can remaster them, go back to the original film and basically re-edit every episode from the original and build an HD version and actually get an HD version because the film is actually very high quality. Right. Uh, that's great news. And a ton of shows have been remastered and look fantastic. Buffy is not one of them. <laughs> they really botched Buffy. And there's a video I'm going to link to that is excellent because it shows you side by side the original standard definition version and the HD version and uh, how it was botched. And there were several ways. First, um, one of the techniques they can do to get rid of the, you know, the uh, bars on the left and right is simply zoom in on the scene. So cut the top and bottom off. Um, and that's done often in Buffy, sometimes with horrible results like cutting off the bottom of somebody's face when they're talking uh, or you know, completely missing some important thing in the scene, like a church burning in the background that you would see at the top of the screen, but don't because of the, you know, the cutting, cutting that part off. Uh, other times they would take the film and actually just expand and use left and right if that's available. But sometimes left and right included crew members and cameras. And in the HD version, you could find crew members and cameras and microphones, sometimes on the edges of the screen, that were cropped out in the original version. Um, also, the color uh, correction was after film, right? They took the film, they brought it into video, and they used color correction to do things like, for instance, uh, make it look like it was nighttime instead of day. And some, when translating to HD, they would take the original film and not color correct it or color correct it incorrectly. And it suddenly it's like, that. wait, this is supposed to be at night. Why is there sunlight coming through the window? Um, stuff like that. Tons of things that were done uh, poorly and wrong. Uh, the person doing this video suspects that some of it might have been because it was done automatically. Right. There's a process where the video can be run into the computer and then the film can be fed into the computer and the computer can just find that clip and then take it in and say, oh, I'll substitute this higher definition clip for this one. But the computer is not seeing the you know, the, the microphone coming off of the edge or the fact that there's something <laughs> at the top of the screen or the bottom of the screen is important or whatever. Um, and then also special effects were applied after filming and they were applied at standard definition for video. So a lot of the special effects had to be redone because mm -hmm. you just had the film. Oh, the, the uh, vampire turning to dust is gone. That has to be redone in HD and oh, hey, in modern modern times, we have a really easy smoke effect. That's kind of similar. Let's have the vampire turn into smoke. So you look at the original and they had this great, you know, the vampire turns to dust and falls to the ground, which is a whole Buffy thing, right? That's That was like what Buffy brought to the vampire right. genre, genre, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of the vampire dustings, as, you know, Buffy fans know to call it, uh, you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, that vampire kind of vanished into smoke. There was no dust. Um, so they really botched it. 
and probably did it for budgetary reasons or because it was given to a subcontractor that just did care. Um, and that's the HD version of Buffy we have today that runs on streaming services. And it's really sad. Uh, and it's, it doesn't do the show any justice. Even They even talk about how like a lot of the artistry is gone. Like they talk about it in that critical episode of Buffy where, uh, yeah, the world is ending, which happens occasionally in Buffy. <laughs> um, uh, while things are getting worse and worse and worse, uh, they're using uh, these darker blue uh, colors to show that you know things are getting bad mm -hmm. and then uh the hero buffy uh basically figures out how to how to win and the color uh correction changes to a bright sunrising kind of color because the sun rises and if you watch the episode you can see all of that artistry for colors put into it well the hd version just got rid of that just doesn't have it yeah Yep. So anyway, watch the video in the link if you're a Buffy fan and you really want to know what it is you're watching today when you, you know, so are watching I'm, Buffy. I'm, I'm, so I watched most of it, uh, yeah. ran out of time, um, and it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, all the stuff that you mentioned, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the color correction one is the one that um, I think stands out to me. Uh, the other one that, that you didn't mention that I thought was... Um, I don't know, humorous at yeah. best, um, was the uh, smoothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the the issue is that, um, you know, when you've got film, film has grain. Mm. And you see that. Um, mm. You may not realize it, but you do see it on the screen. It becomes more apparent when you are taking film and, and uh, uh, rendering it in high definition. Um, it's something that I see all the time when I'm just scanning my slides or or negatives or something like that. The grain comes through. And in fact, if the grain is coming through, if I can see the grain, that means I've actually got a good scan of what it is I was I was capturing. Unfortunately, apparently, um, whoever was doing this uh, uh, remaster didn't think that grain was appropriate. Mm. So they ran a smoothing algorithm on it, which is fine. Uh, you know, yep, those those backgrounds and all those solid surfaces looked a little less grainy. Uh, but unfortunately, so did people's faces. Uh, because as it turns out, things like pores and stubble and whatever else is on your face tends to look a little bit like grain, at least to the algorithm that's doing the uh, uh, yeah. uh, the smoothing. And uh, the net result, this person who's doing the video referred to several times that they all look like plastic dolls because they've got smooth, you know, perfectly smooth skin in, in weird ways and places. But, um, but yeah, so do I recommend that Buffy fans watch this video? Here's the thing. I'm afraid that I will not be able to watch the HD versions anymore and enjoy them. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I'll be looking for all of these things, um, including, you know, um, uh, cameramen and boom operators and cut off faces and, you know, colors that are just wrong. So, well, I anyway. have the DVDs, which would be the standard definition original mm -hmm. version. So I can lend you the DVDs and you could watch <laughs> <laughs> the original Buffy and glorious standard definition. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the hope is, and the reason the video was made, and he says several times in it, is that hopefully, some point, somebody, I think Disney owns owns the Fox film division that did Buffy. Mm -hmm. um, some, at some point, they'll go in and say, let's put some money into this and do it again. And 
get it right and maybe have a you know big re-release big deal get it sure. on blu-ray you yeah. know buy order now special event kind of thing and maybe it will justify the price of going through and getting it done right and uh one of the things yeah. i do agree with the uh, the the video person is that um that show mm. as cheesy as it was mm. um actually did mark a very interesting point it actually had an impact on um, the genre and the shows that followed and it's something that is well worth investing that kind of time in to uh, to do that one of it is one of my favorite shows of all time Buffy the, speaking uh, right of up. that's a yeah. wonderful segue yeah awesome okay. well done okay um to to ain't it cool so i have mentioned before that one of my favorite movies of all time is colossus the forbin project mm -hmm. um, it's a 1960s cold war era um, ultimately very depressing <laughs> movie uh, at least it ends on a very depressing note and i honestly uh, i guess i never really thought about it it doesn't surprise me that it was based on a book what i did not know is that the book had sequels um, mm. and I, this is, I'm calling this a prequel because I haven't read them yet. I just pushed the buy it now button on them yesterday. Um, I've got the three books, Colossus, and then there are two sequels that presumably present a somewhat rosier result. We will see, but mm, I'm looking yes. for, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading those. Have you by any chance read those three books? No, no, okay. I, I have not. So I didn't know they existed. I, there you go. So now, and now, you know. Okay. Uh, oh, my, uh, my ain't it cool is I watched the Tetris movie, which uh, is a, a new film, major film release, but it is on Apple TV plus. Um, and it is a, a story, the story of basically how Tetris came out of the Soviet Union and uh, made its way basically onto the Game Boy uh, to become one of the most famous games of all time. Uh, it's filled with a uh, it's, it's not really the story of a video game at all because very little of the movie is about the game itself. It's about, you know, dealing with uh, the end of the Cold War and, uh, you know, the, how the video game industry worked then to license things and how, you know, greed and everything in the, in the end of the Soviet Union. It's a, it's a kind of a spy espionage, uh, you know, movie with some action and everything in it. Um, and it's, uh, it's quite a good film and if you like video games at all you're going to love it for that but even if you don't like video games if you just like you know movies like that um it, it's it's uh, well worth the watch it's a good good film cool cool yeah so it's not um what i was thinking of what was it um they did a video a, a movie version of another video game um i don't know like battleship no that's sonic a or battleship or any of those or right? sonic that yeah there's tons yeah. no no <laughs> this isn't like blocks falling from the sky no this is like the, <laughs> this is a real nonfiction. matter of fact it's produced by the the people that were originally in the story um including the inventor of tetris i noticed was one of the executive producers oh cool who now is a u.s citizen and yep and uh has been and i've met Wasn't him he actually working for microsoft for a while yeah yeah i think he did for a long time i met him once uh lexi uh uh last name escapes me but um i uh yeah i met him at a game developers conference at once and uh spent some time actually walking around in different booths just me and him 
which uh, was Neat. great. Yeah. <laughs> and I can I could vouch for the the uh, actor playing him in the movie uh, did capture his personality. He Excellent. definitely had what I would call a very quiet charm. Okay. Like somebody that you definitely enjoyed being around, but he, you know, it wasn't, didn't, didn't uh, speak that much, but when he did, you, you, you know, really liked what he had to say. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's actually very cool. Mm -hmm. All righty. Uh, let's see. Self-promotion. So I am going to point everyone at running check disc when check disc won't run. It's askleo.com slash one, five, four, five, seven, six. The issue here is that check disc, the disc repair maintenance utility, normally you can't run it on your system drive because there are files being used by Windows itself that prevent the, uh, this, the utility from doing its job. The normal solution is that when you try to do that, it will offer you the option to schedule check disc to run the next time you reboot your machine. I had someone reach out to me for whom that wasn't working. Check disk just wasn't running for whatever reason. And while I didn't have a solution for that specifically, um, what I did find out or what I did dive into was the uh, command prompt that's available on the recovery console when you boot from uh, Windows installation media or Windows recovery media. So there's a little bit of a, a dive into that on how you can still run check disk even if it won't run by going into that recovery console. It's a useful, useful tool for the, uh, the uh, arsenal of, of tricks when you're dealing with a, with a Windows system. Cool. Um, since we talk a lot about AI, I'll point to my AI video of the week, <laughs> 10 things you can do with chat GPT. Um, so, you know, if you've been hearing us talk about this or other things about chat GPT and you're like, well, it doesn't apply to me, what could I possibly use it for? Um, this basically is a video where I give some examples of things normal people can just use it for right now. You know, I have to say that I've done several videos on chat GPT now, and the, I, I, I'm always afraid when I do them on some technology like this, that people are going to complain, Hey, this isn't about Macs or Apple stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you, this is, you could do this on windows. You can do this on Linux. You don't, you don't, it's not Apple specific. Um, the, it, and sometimes I do videos like that and people say, no, no, no. And it's kind of rejected. Um, it hasn't been the case here. In fact, it's been the opposite. Everybody it's, interested. It's been a lot of people interested and yeah. a lot of people, uh, very enthusiastic about if not the technology itself, about at least learning about the technology on my channel. So, so I've, yeah, that's great. And I plan on just continuing to do occasional videos on ChatGPT or BARD or whatever. Have you done anything, um, not necessarily videos or Mac most, but have you played with Midjourney at all? I have. Oh, I have not, but I have played with Adobe Firefly. Oh, cool. Okay. Which is their entry into the space because I already have a full career. I, I don't know if I'm getting Adobe Firefly because I have Creative Cloud or if I'm getting it because I have Adobe Stock. I think it's probably because I have Adobe Stock, but I have subscriptions to both. Mm -hmm. So when they announced their beta, I thought, well, here's the natural one for me to like, if I'm going to right. invest time into learning how to use one, let right. me do the Adobe one since I'm already paying for Adobe and all that. Right. Um, so I've been playing around with that. Um, it's in beta. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I, I've come to the conclusion playing around with that and other things over the last year or so that a lot of times when you see these pictures, people say, look at this thing. It was, uh, it's an image created with AI. Doesn't it look amazing. 
I, you have to go and say, all right, how many attempts? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before you got, I mean, this image is stunning. Yes. But how yes. many hours did you put into learning how to do it? And how many attempts until you finally got this stunning image? Because you can't just type in like a description and then hit return and be like, oh, there it goes. Hit it out of the park. No, you have to you have to work at it to get something that looks like the images that get passed around. I read a um, headline, that's what I'm finding with Firefly. I had a, I saw a headline last few days basically that said one of the biggest um, job opportunities right now mm -hmm. are for people who are able to craft AI prompts. Yeah. So um, one of the neat things about Midjourney is that it's all done in Discord for some reason, but you get to see yeah. everybody's prompts fly by and the results. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting to see some of the prompts they get to be incredibly complex and convoluted. And you can understand why, well, yeah, yeah, you're not necessarily learning how to use AI. You're learning how to use this AI and exactly which words make the most difference in the right ways and you know to get you the results that you want. Well, yeah, like as an example, I was trying to do, you know, I, I could see myself using this as a way to do backgrounds for my YouTube thumbnails. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, well, you're not supposed to be using anything out of the beta publicly, but I, I don't know. My backgrounds may look similar to some things. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying it out. But at one point I was like, hey, uh, what would be neat is for this, a robot hand pressing something on the screen. Mm -hmm. That would be a cool background. Yep. And so I typed that in. And uh, one of the things I had to type afterwards was specified that the robot hand should have five fingers. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you know, I, I would never in a million years have like started off by saying a robot hand with five fingers pressing a button on a screen. Never. But uh, yeah, I did have to actually add that. And my results got a little bit better because of that. And then you keep adding things like that right, to kind right. of encourage it to be like, ah, I'm trying to push you in this direction. You're getting close. But one of the cool things about Firefly is you spend a lot of time on uh, like uh, uh, styles. Like you could, I could, you could type all that and then I could say, oh, the style is going to be steampunk or the style oh, right. is going to be sci-fi or it's going to be uh, real realism or whatever. Pixar is a good one to use. Yep. Yeah. So there's a lot of really cool, like, oh, I don't have to, in my description, say in this style, I could actually set it to give me everything steampunky and pixelated and artistic and whatever. And then then I can go and describe what I want. Anyway, it's something I definitely, I think we should, I should talk about more maybe uh, as Firefly develops. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I've, I've been playing with Midjourney myself. Mm -hmm. And um, as it turns out, Canva, the design tool um, that people may or may not be aware of, um, also has its own um, image generator. And, and I also have access to Dolly. Dolly is still around. And so far, Midjourney is actually the best one. It actually does the best. And of course, I'm testing everything on corgis. Um, all <laughs> the all the images that I generate have corgis in them, and mm. um, some corgis are actually downright frightening, the stuff of nightmares. Oh. But Midjourney is doing a better job of of actually rendering something that looks more realistic when I ask for that. So anyway, it's another interesting topic to talk about sometime um, and maybe play around with. And I will go and see if I can't get Midjourney to go generate me a uh, a five fingered robot hand pushing a button on the screen. Yeah, what you get. Right. <laughs> Okay. I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. 
Yeah. The show notes for this week are out at tehpodcast.com slash teh188. If you've got a comment or a question, be sure and leave it out there. We absolutely see them all. Thanks as always for listening and we will see you here again real soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.